You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Batman series. Amidst an ever-expanding world of cinematic superheroes, the character of Batman remains one of the most iconic. The first comic book version of the Batman Bruce Wayne persona was first created for the page by Bill Finger and Bob Kane in 1940. And since the late 1960s, this character has been represented at the movies in various live-action and animated incarnations by at least seven different actors. Once a month over the next four months, I will be revisiting one movie featuring a different actor playing the Cape Crusader leading up to the U.S. release of The Batman on March 4th this time starring Robert Pattinson in the title role. The movie is Batman Forever, which came out in 1995 and was directed by Joel Schumacher. But first, let's meet our contestants. Going down. Where you kiss the girl. The real game begins. Courage now. Truth always. Batman forever. It stars Val Kilmer, Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee Jones, Nicole Kidman, Chris O'Donnell, and Michael Goff. The genre would be superhero comedy, he says with a question mark. Oh, Batman Forever. Holy rusted metal, what a loud, obnoxious mess of a movie this is. It's actually worse than I remember, and a significant drop-off from the wonderful insanity of its predecessor from three years prior, Batman Returns. Check out that review, I just reviewed it recently. Now, replacing Michael Keaton in the title role was always going to be tricky, but in the mid-90s, hiring Val Kilmer, who had recently blown the doors off with recent performances in Tombstone and The Doors, seemed really promising. And Kilmer does look good in The Cape and Cal, as some peck and codpiece close-ups in the movie make clear to us. And beyond that, he just isn't given much to do besides smile and grimace. His Batman Bruce Wayne is basically the straight man to the, quote, buffoonery of several of his co-stars. So you're willing to take a life? As long as it's Two-Face. Then it will happen this way. You make the kill. But your pain doesn't die with Harvey, it grows. So you run out into the night to find another face. And another. And another. Until one terrible morning you wake up and realize that revenge has become your whole life. And there's Tommy Lee Jones, just slumming it with a ridiculous makeup job as Two-Face. But we'll get back to him later. Even more disappointingly, I thought I'd remembered that Jim Carrey was actually funny in this movie. But the result just feels more desperate. His Edward Nigma slash Riddler is given way too much screen time considering how little he's actually given to do but prance around and chew scenery. And here's the thing. This was just a year after Jim Carrey had killed it as a madcap comic book character, not that different from the Riddler in the movie The Mask. 
And this was also just a year before he would play a pretty twisted, media-obsessed creep in The Cable Guy. But here, in Batman Forever, Jim Carrey is neither funny, nor menacing, nor even really that entertaining. I simply love what you've done with this place. Heavy metal meets house and garden. Ha ha ha! Beautiful. It's so dark and gothic and disgustingly decadent. It's so bright and cheaper and conservative. It's so you and yet so you. And the less said about his so-called riddles, the better. Nicole Kidman also embarrasses herself as her, quote, psychologist, Dr. Chase Meridian, that's her name, who spends most of her screen time thirsting after Batman. Seriously. She and Kilmer, now they do have decent chemistry on screen, but that just develops into a confusing subplot involving some kind of love triangle between her Dr. Meridian, Bruce Wayne, and Batman. She's pretty one note in these scenes, not helped by the fact that Kilmer's voice in and out of the costume, sounds pretty identical. So you just have to wonder if this is some kind of knowing cosplay fetish for both characters. What is it about the wrong kind of man? In grade school, it was guys with earrings, college, motorcycles, leather jackets. Now? Oh, black rubber. Try firemen, less to take off. The production design for Gotham in this movie seems pretty eye-popping at times, but director Joel Schumacher, R.I.P. Joel Schumacher, his constant need to have his camera swooping around in various directions just kind of obscures it at times, making it hard to appreciate. And the score. Okay, look, I get that Danny Elfman didn't want to come back because Tim Burton wasn't returning either as the director. But why did they have to remove Elfman's iconic bat theme as well? This was continuing within the same universe with the same character, albeit the main character being recast. It just feels off with the half-hearted sort of theme music that composer Elliot Goldenthal brings to the table through no fault of his own. He's just not able to duplicate or even come close to what Elfman did with those first two movies. And beyond that, the story just feels cobbled together, the action is often incomprehensible, and the editing is just extremely choppy. We often drift from quiet moments to loud moments with very little context. Schumacher had given us some good films already by this point, for sure, including the quite underrated Falling Down, which he had directed a couple of years prior. But here he just seems to be pulling out all the stops towards crafting a giant superhero musical only lacking songs or actual choreography. Now, I haven't seen all of Batman and Robin recently. I did see it in theaters. But I have to wonder if that Bat sequel, which is now considered the worst, actually holds up as a better movie than this one thanks to some self-aware camp. At least that movie had Arnold Schwarzenegger doing what Arnold Schwarzenegger does. Because Batman Forever could very well be the worst feature film starring the Cape Crusader. And that brings me to the categories. Because we are now part of the ongoing Living for the Batman series, the first category is the best bat bit. This series has so many elements which carry over through various incarnations of the Cape Crusader. Theme music, Batmobile, villain, Alfred, and even visual gags involving the bat symbol. 
And this award goes to the one that stands out the most for this particular entry in Batman film canon. Now, there's not much to choose from, unfortunately, with Batman Forever, but I will say this. He's not given nearly enough to do, but Val Kilmer looks good in the cape and cowl. He's just got the right type of facial structure with the perfect chin to make the Batman look strong and confident. Now, no, we didn't really exactly need those close-ups of bat nipples or bat butt, but hey, the dude does have the right physique to fill out the suit pretty well. And I'll give him this too. In a moment that really shouldn't work on paper, we actually see Batman give out a big gleaming smile at one point in this movie. And Kilmer, to his credit, just sells it. I know, it sounds crazy, but he sells it. He's pretty close compared to the rest of the field, but of all the live-action Batmans to grace the big screen, nobody pulled off the bat look better than Kilmer. And that brings me to the next category, which would be Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. And this film was sorely lacking that Batman theme. I remember watching this in theaters for the first time in 95, and I remember finding myself just aghast that not only did they not bring back Danny Elfman to score this film, but they just completely removed his theme. Just egregious. So score is out of the question when it comes to Needle Drop. Now, fortunately, there is a solid assortment of 90s pop on the soundtrack, even though I'm not sure if all of it really fits so well within a Batman movie. The big hit at the time from this very soundtrack was Seal's Kiss from a Rose, which admittedly is a very gorgeous ballad. It's just that you never actually hear it in the movie. It just plays during the last third of the end credits, but still a great song. Now, actually, if I'm being honest, my personal choice for this category isn't really heard during the movie either, but at the very least, it kicks off the end credits in rockin' fashion, just as the bat symbol appears on screen as the credits roll. And that would be from Dublin's own purveyors of Four Chords and the Truth, U2, maintaining their place as one of the premier rock bands of the 80s and 90s. And this was the Irish Quartet in full-on electronic mid-90s Zoo TV form. This song was actually originally a B-side from tracks produced for their Octung Baby album from 91, and they decided to contribute it to Batman film canon. And just the fact that I could rattle that off should tell you just how much of an obsessed YouTube fan I was at the time of release for this film. The song is called Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. And this high-energy ditty is filled with wah-wah guitars, strings, lots of reverb, and even some hands clapping. Now, it's not peak U2, but all these years later, it's still a banger. And that brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment, the scener moment that best describes this movie. <laughs> this is a funny one. Okay, now this one is badly dated, 
And in all honesty, this is a very silly moment. But for me, it's just one of the few points in this movie when I feel like Schumacher just kind of nails the irreverent tone reminiscent of the 60s Batman show that he seems to be going for. It shouldn't, but it just makes me laugh. And this would be when, drumroll please, Chris O'Donnell's Dick Grayson steals the Batmobile and takes it for a joyride. I know, I know, it's ridiculous. And Lord knows that I was not particularly impressed with this universe's version of Robin as a character. But I don't know, O'Donnell is just clearly improvising in this scene, and it works for me just for the sheer goofiness of watching a 25-year-old who looks 30 playing a 17-year-old orphan just cruising down the block in this absurd neon-covered bat car and trying to pretend that he's, you know, all that. Children's is Batman. Wait a minute. That's not Batman. What are you talking about? That's Bat Boy. It ain't the Bat. That brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. The most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, you could almost have a four-way tie for this category. No joke. Considering how Carrie, Kidman, and Kilmer are pretty much wasted. But still, those actors at least have their moments. And they even seem to be having fun at times. But not this guy. Not Tommy Lee Jones, who just a couple of years prior had won his Oscar for his dazzling performance in The Fugitive. Nope, at this point in the mid-90s, Tommy Lee was just pretty much riding that Oscar glory for several full-on paycheck roles playing cheesy villains. And to be fair, him going full-on nutso in Natural Born Killers, which came out the year before, it worked for that particular movie in 94. But wow, same year, his ghastly Irish bomber in Blown Away, not good, just not good. But Jones even went lower this time around playing a Batman villain. And the funny thing is, that we all now know, as it's come out in interviews since then, that Tommy Lee Jones absolutely hated working alongside Jim Carrey on this movie. Apparently at a restaurant during filming, he flat out chewed out Jim Carrey for his hamminess and declared that he would not, quote, sanction his buffoonery, which is a phrase that I just love, by the way. Now, Jones had a point, too, as Carrey, he's pretty much insufferable for most of his screen time, but... I'm at a loss as to what even the purpose of Tommy Lee Jones' Harvey Two-Face is doing in this movie. His character is underwritten, even though he's given a backstory and gobs of screen time. It's just bizarre. And the less said about how that backstory is presented, the better. It doesn't even feel like he's actually giving a performance here for what on paper should have been, and in other movies like The Dark Knight, a very compelling character. For all of his screen time, we pretty much just witnessed Tommy Lee Jones vamping to keep displaying the pink goo that's covering half his face, that's the makeup, cackling out threats, shooting his gun into the air, dispatching his goons, rinse, repeat, in a cast loaded with wasted talent, his is wasted the most by far. Let's start this party with a bang! Even for his own funeral. Boys, kill the bat. And that brings me to the final category. That would be the MVP, 
the person or people who are most responsible for the success or lack of success of this film. Now, I don't fault the excesses of this movie on the director. I fault the studio. Warner Brothers was clearly in overcorrection mode after the very mixed reception to Batman Returns from a few years prior. A movie that I adore, by the way. Check out that review. They basically assembled a fantasy league of bankable stars at the time, as opposed to a cast of actors who would work well together. They hired a director not known for his subtlety nor restraint, and they threw $100 million at it so that everyone could just go hog wild, creating a two-hour toy commercial instead of a movie. That this film is even halfway watchable at times is still to the credit of the late, great Joel Schumacher. I don't think he directed a good film by any stretch, but it was still his crazy, candy-colored vision that came through at the end of the day. He wanted to make a live-action cartoon-slash-musical without music or animation, and he generally succeeded at that. And in the years since the release of this film and its arguably more ridiculous sequel, Batman and Robin, Schumacher really went all out to publicly apologize for the excesses of these films, even in the director's commentaries on their DVD releases. Schumacher was a unique talent, just hired for the wrong job at the wrong time. But I have to give him props for following his vision and at least being a stand-up guy. He took real ownership over this. And if Schumacher wouldn't have done what he did, then less than 10 years later, Chris Nolan wouldn't have been hired to do what he did, resulting in what I feel is still not only the greatest Batman film ever, but the greatest superhero film ever made. But that's coming in a future review. Regardless, Schumacher is the MVP. If there's anybody watching this that, let's say, loved Batman Forever and went into Batman and Robin with great anticipation, if I, if I disappointed them in any way, then I really want to apologize because it wasn't my intention. My intention was just to entertain them. My rating for Batman Forever would be one star out of five. No, no, no. For a movie like this, nostalgia certainly cuts both ways. Yes, I have fond memories of seeing this in theaters, but at the same time, we've had some truly great Batman movies since then that just make this look all the more sillier by comparison. Batman Forever is near the bottom of live-action Batman movies and superhero movies in general. But if you're still looking to watch it, you can find Batman Forever streaming on HBO Max. And that ends another headache-inducing review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast. And follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.